This week's episode of On the Record Off Script is supported in part by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks who are short on time. They get the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantity you need so there's no food waste and it all gets delivered to your doorstep in a special insulated box and delivery is free. I was super excited to find out that HelloFresh is not just available in Nova Scotia, but available in parts of Nova Scotia outside of Halifax. I live in a really remote rural area of Nova Scotia and HelloFresh delivers to my doorstep when a lot of other services don't get here. It's also just really great to know that at the end of a busy day, everything you need for that night's meal is already in the HelloFresh box. For me, not having that means driving 15 minutes into town to get to a grocery store. For other people, it means fighting through traffic at rush hour to get what you need at the grocery store, waiting through lineups. So HelloFresh lets you avoid all that and just kind of focus on the fun part of making and eating a meal. Listeners to On The Record Off Script get a special deal. You can get 50% off your first box by visiting hellofresh.ca slash on the record or use promo code record50 at checkout after you've had a chance to explore the site. You've also got some options when it comes to what you get from HelloFresh. You get to pick the meals you want. They change them up regularly, so there's some variety, but at the end of the day, it's you that decides what you get to eat that week. So again, you can get 50% off your first box by visiting hellofresh.ca slash on the record or using promo code RECORD50 at checkout after you've had a chance to explore the site. In the last episode of Offscript, we began talking about how decision-making works in our government. We talked about how MLAs and either government or opposition approach getting decisions made in their favor, decisions on things that need to land on the legislature floor, and things that just needed to be decided on within government by a senior civil servant, a deputy minister, or a minister. This week, we'll start to unpack how a minister's office works, how the people who held that office, who we spoke to, approached making decisions and the kind of decisions they had to make, how they did or did not involve caucus in their decision-making, and we'll touch on how the rest of cabinet and the premier's office would be involved in decisions that fell under one minister's portfolio. We're not going to get too deep into that last point because that'll be a topic for the next week's episode. For today, we start with the ministers themselves. But when I first started... Um, people had um, would bring things in for me to sign, and I'd say, "Well, yeah, leave it there, and I'll, I'll get to it." Sort of thing. Oh no, we're, we this needs to be signed pretty quickly. We, you know, the people are waiting on this. And I said, "Well, I, I'll get to it when I can." Well, why didn't you just sign it? And I said, "Well, I haven't read it." Oh, you don't have to read it. And I said, "Well, I'm going to sign it, and you don't want me to read it." She said, no, 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 this is just routine stuff, you know. Maurice Smith was a one-time MLA and served as a backbencher until late in the term of Daryl Dexter's NDP government. He was appointed to cabinet about a year and a half before the government called the election that would mark its defeat. Maurice, or Mo, as he likes to be called, was the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure Renewal. I said, well, at least I'm going to read, you know, a few of them to see what I'm signing, sort of thing. Well... After that, there's nothing that came across my desk that I didn't read, because the number of typos and the number of glaring errors errors that I saw in these things were absolutely astounding. And I got a I get I got a reputation for someone who you had to do you had to do it right, or I'd send it back. And I kept sending things back, and eventually, you know, and and again, somebody would come to me and say, "Well, why did you do that?" And I, you know, and I said, "Because it's wrong." 
well, this is just, a, you know, this is just an internal document or something, you know. Then I said, well, I don't care what it is. I'm not putting my name on it. I know it's wrong. And, uh, well, yeah, but, you know, this is going to slow us down. And I kept thinking, well, then do it right. Mo's story is unique in some respects. He took the rote elements of the job more seriously than many of the other cabinet ministers we heard from in our interviews. But in other respects, his story represents two of the things we did hear about a lot. The first is simply the amount of rote and routine work that cabinet as a group and as individual ministers are consumed with. And the second is the mindset that many ministers found themselves in. The mindset of seeing their responsibilities as being primarily about reviewing and deciding on matters that came to them. A few ministers, by contrast, told us about going out of their way to initiate work, new programs, new policy agendas, some on their own initiative, and some at the request of their premier. But by and large, what we heard about was ministers acting as deciders, judges, if you will, about the matters that landed on their desks. Here's Mo Smith talking about the types of decisions that would include. Well, just let's say I'll just give you an example. As uh, I was transportation and infrastructure renewal, so lots of leases. So I'd look at a lease, and they could have the the lessor and the lessee, but have them reversed. Okay. The actual opposite <laughs> of what it should be, you know, that kind of thing. These routine decisions, decisions that came to a specific cabinet minister and came to them regularly to be decided upon, were common in every portfolio. And for the most part, they weren't particularly interesting or significant. But some of them were quite heavy decisions. My first day on the job as Minister of Community Services, uh, just after I was sworn in, my new deputy minister, new to me, tapped me on the shoulder and said, you must immediately come over to the office. Francine Cosman was the Minister of Community Services under John Savage's Liberal government. We have a court case on right now. We're taking a child into custody, and the judge has to have the paper signed by you, the minister. And that was my introduction to my new job. So I walked over to the office. I reviewed the file, signed the papers. child was taken out of parental custody Hmm. and taken into care. And it was a shock to me to realize, oh my God, that's my job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome to and the job. Any time a child was taken into custody, you would have been the Only if asylum. it went through a ministerial order before a judge, which okay. this case was. And it did come back to haunt me a few years later on another case where the man who was abusing his child went to prison, and when he got out, he came after me. And I had to have hired guards at my house for a while because he threatened to kill me. And I had to keep the drapes closed. <laughs> so it was a job that had all sorts of really significant issues to manage. Not everything that a minister had to decide on came from inside the department, though. As Minister of Transportation, one of the groups that Mo Smith was lobbied by was Canadian Tire. I'll just give you an example. Canada, Canadian Tire came, wanting me to um, make sure that uh, all winter tires were studded because they wanted to sell tires, you know. And uh, so there would be like a delegation, people, you know. One of Mo's colleagues, Ramona Jennings, who is Minister of Education, told us about how she dealt with the proposals that landed on her desk from outside of government. Education, I met with uh, anyone that asked. There was no one that I refused uh, to meet with in education. I now, in terms of, like, yeah. how, like, the ideas that come at you must be overwhelming when people say we think you should do this we think you should do that is there like a yeah well there is there's a, a there's for... yeah there, there there is um well i i had i have a tool that i carry with me all the time and the tool is who benefits 
So every time someone's saying something to me, I'm rolling this, who's benefiting? And if I'm hearing something that I can definitely see that kids are going to benefit, I'm really listening. If I'm hearing that someone is out to make money, that they're going to benefit because they're going to get the people we're trying to make money. I get a lot of that, or they wanted their book in the, the school. They're benefiting financially. Um, and, it, and if it didn't benefit the children, that I wasn't, I didn't take it any further. So that was my tool. Who benefits? So if it, if definitely I could see benefits for our students, then uh, I would. This mindset of ministers acting simply on what came to them rather than initiating something new popped up relatively early as we were conducting these interviews with former cabinet ministers. So in one of our later interviews with Graham Steele, I shared a bit about what we were finding and got his take on it. Really, they're saying, "Well, this came to me, and I think I made the right decision." Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, I, I, I can see that, where you, you basically, you, be, you become a prisoner of what comes in front of you, mm-hmm. because if you get into the job without a really specific idea of what you want to accomplish, so you wake up every morning saying, how am I going to advance that objective that I, that I got into politics for, then you are doing what's coming at you. That's certainly true of casework in the constituency, um, certainly true as a cabinet minister, um, I, my experience has been in all governments, not just ours. The cabinet ministers are completely prisoners of their of their schedules. They end up being really, really busy. Uh, they're running all the time, but there's no overall purpose or objective. They're just trying to keep their head above water. You know, and somebody else is setting up their calendar and deciding who they're meeting, what they're meeting about, and. In some cases, ministers were given clear direction from the premier about the priorities they should focus on. This usually came in the form of a mandate letter, and while we know most ministers get them when they are appointed to cabinet, only a few ex-cabinet ministers we interviewed actually brought them up when we asked them about how they approached their jobs. Don't forget that we did away with the health boards that... um, John Savage had put in place. Jamie Muir was a cabinet minister in both John Hamm and Ryan McDonald's progressive conservative governments. And I basically went in there and you get these letters from the premier. He sends, this is what our priorities for the department are. Mm-hmm. So, a mandate letter, a mandate letter yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was one of them. Uh, one was to, uh, you know, to some, we set up those uh, localized health authorities again. Another one was to try and get some handle on long-term care, which we did. Some ministers engaged their caucuses on major decisions that were coming through their departments, while others didn't. The trend we've heard about is that over time, caucuses are less and less engaged on the decisions coming down from individual cabinet ministers' offices and the premier's office. Here's an example of what that engagement would have looked like in the late 90s. Everything came to caucus. Everything? Pretty well everything, yep. So caucus had to say it. Or the error and what was going on, whether their consensus ever got the cabinet to be the winning one or not, but in some cases probably it did. Wayne Adams, a former liberal MLA and environment minister, brought to caucus the idea of adding a 10-cent deposit onto glass and plastic bottles to incentivize people to return those bottles to a recycling depot for a 5-cent refund. Well, no one really knew how that 10 cents was going to come down with 5 cents back. If you're going to take 10 cents, you better give 10 cents back. Says, well, it's, it's what we're going to do with the money. And we're going to generate a whole lot of work with 5 cents. And they couldn't really see through that. Hmm. 
But certainly after it happened, they all saw through it because they all wanted to have a deep hole in the back here. <laughs> so caucus initially resisted, but I go, what was it that brought them on board? Premier, basically. Okay. Yeah, we think it's the right thing to do. And we started it with the school kids. And we had staff members who would go to schools and talk about recycling and waste and what was, we think is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Give them ideas. The kids be delighted with this. And, uh, and I made a few appearances here and there. And uh, then we had focus groups all around the province. Got whether it be a Lions Club or a church group to have a focus group mm-hmm. to spearhead it. We go facilitate it, talk to people, get their ideas of what we wanted to do. And uh, quite frankly, we had a major consensus of agreement before we announced it. Within like the communities? Yeah, yeah, around the province. The way that decision played out and the way it was engaged with at caucus is worth noting. We heard a lot that caucus would push back on a particular decision and that ultimately there was some combination of those in cabinet listening more to caucus, but also selling members of caucus on why what they were bringing them was a good decision in the first place and just finding a way to bring caucus along, which is the situation Wayne described. Percy Paris, a former minister of several portfolios, including economic development in Daryl Dexter's NDP cabinet, admitted that engaging caucus in decision-making was something that he and his colleagues in cabinet weren't initially inclined to prioritize. When we first started, and I like to think we got better at it, when, uh, when and I'll st- I think we as cabinet ministers were making decisions with a caucus input. That's at the very beginning. And... Uh, uh, we were so, I shouldn't say we, I, well, I don't know if I can say we or not, but uh, cabinet ministers get so caught up in what their responsibilities are, and you got to make decisions. And uh, what, I, what I experienced was there was a whole other group uh, that, was, that, that make up the caucus, but aren't cabinet ministers, that had no input into that decision, and I didn't. I didn't realize it until caucus pointed out, and I said, "Well, you know what? They're right. I mean, we are government, even though we're cabinet ministers. You know, it's not just us. <laughs> we have to include caucus as well." So, I, um, um, I'd like to think, and I hope I, I know I did do it. I started referring uh, things to uh, to caucus for their input, and then what I found is that, well, I've already made my mind up, and as which was the best direction for this for this decision to go, and I would take that to caucus. Uh, and looking for their input, but I sort of already had had my mind. If I did, if I said I didn't have my mind made up, then I, that wouldn't be true. But I already had my my main my mind made up. So my my goal then was now I got to present this, and even though it's not finalized yet because I need caucus input, gee, I hope I can sway them to think the way that I'm thinking. At the end of the day, caucus doesn't have any decision-making authority over matters of the provincial government. It's a part of the party structure. 
Nothing needs to be vetted by caucus. And whether it's an issue being brought by a low-ranking cabinet minister or the premier himself, the positions taken on that issue by caucus are non-binding. If a cabinet minister brings an issue to caucus, they do it for their own reasons. Perhaps they feel they have an obligation to do so, or they're worried about a caucus revolt, or they genuinely believe that doing so will allow them to do their jobs better. The more powerful presence we heard about that an individual cabinet minister had to concern themselves with was that of the premier and his, it's always been a he in Nova Scotia, staff. After all, the premier decides who sits in cabinet and he can show you the door. Here's Mo Smith again on his experience trying to move something forward through his own office as a minister and how the premier's office would involve themselves. If a department wanted to do something, no department, and I don't know if this is the same because this was my first time being in government, but um, my personal experience was uh, that there was absolutely too, too much um, Premier's office control over everything. If I wanted to write a letter as the Minister of Transportation on an issue, a draft would come to me. I might want to make some changes. It would go back, uh, in-house kind of thing. And then it would go to the Premier's office. And they'd come back and they said, well, you can't say that, or, you, or do this or do that. And then you, the correction made to go back again. Well, five days would go by. Well, the issue that you wanted to talk about is, is moot now. And, you know, there were a couple of, couple of issues, like I think the clear-cutting one and one about the cuts to education where um, the ministers themselves didn't, didn't go along with what the plan was going to be from the central office. And they weren't the minister any longer. Marilyn Moore was moved out of education because she wouldn't go along with the cuts that were, the the drastic cuts that were asked. John McDonnell was taken out of natural resources because he wasn't supportive of the final, you know, clear-cutting issue. Uh, So they were given other portfolios, you know, they were just moved. It was just that they couldn't live with what was being suggested. It was uncommon for us to hear about any premier's office not being interested in what actions were being taken within individual ministers' offices. Not interest in the rote type of work that Mo described earlier, the kind of work where decisions were unlikely to be different from one government to the next, but the kind of work that a whole government would end up wearing as part of their reputation. That was the kind of work the premier's office was interested in. One exception to this was a reflection shared with us by Mark Perrin, a former environment minister under Rodney McDonald's progressive conservative government. Rodney had these problems and there was a vacuum. Nobody had any, and so for a very short time, the environment and and ministry I held sort of led the charge on everything and so for a couple years we were we were really and I had a the deputy minister for Rodney was a friend of my deputy ministers and so really the for about two years there uh, I really had the fortune of being sort of running the thing because of, of Rodney's personal life like Mark Parent credited his ability to usher in a landmark piece of legislation in part due to the vacuum in leadership at the Premier's office and having more free reign than he otherwise would have had under usual circumstances. Prior to the Ivany report, um, there had been another report that said, OK, what can, what can Nova Scotia do to prosper? And one of the things they thought was the sort of green economy 
would be something that we could we could move in and so um, there was this recognition across the influential people in society within the cabinet within the civil service and then i brought it to cabinet and as i said there was a vacuum and so in a vacuum there was opportunity to say okay well what what's going to be a face of our government what are we going to do that's going to be distinctive how are we going to get the economy going and i said this is a great document why have we never put why have we never worked at this as a government and i said well because really you don't you know we don't have political support for it so the the civil servant were ready they 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 saw you know it was time of rio it was time time of um, sustainability is time when people realized that you couldn't have a vibrant economy without a vibrant without caring for the environment that it was one of the pillars of your economy eventually the work mark parent would do in trying to act on this particular file would turn into the environmental goals and sustainable prosperity act something that had a strong amount of support not only from parties on all sides of the legislature but also from civil society groups outside the legislature as well Again, Mark's story is more the exception of how a cabinet minister in Nova Scotia carries out their duties than it is the rule. We share it so there's some contrast in uh, what was the dominant role that cabinet ministers played that we heard about, the role of decider. Most cabinet ministers don't end up initiating big, bold projects that the premier doesn't ask them to take on, and where the premier's office doesn't have some ongoing involvement in shaping and controlling it. On this week's show, and on last week's show, we're bound to leave you with more questions than answers about how decision-making works in Nova Scotia politics. Because at the end of the day, decision-making in government isn't straightforward. We know what happens in public when a bill is introduced in the legislature, or when a new program or service is announced. But from talking to the MLAs we've spoken with, we also know that what we see in public is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to understanding the truth about how decisions get made from within the provincial government. So next week, we'll cover the final chapter in our dive inside how power works in a government in Nova Scotia. We'll talk about how cabinet meetings work, how they evolved over time from John Savage in the mid-90s all the way up to the present day and hear from a former cabinet minister from Stephen McNeil's cabinet. We'll explore how the premier and the premier's staff shape what happens at a cabinet meeting, what's on the table and what's not. That's next week on On the Record, Off Script. That is this week's episode of On the Record, Off Script. Thanks for listening. If you haven't subscribed yet, make sure to do so. You can do it in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, any of the other podcast catching apps. If you do it in Apple Podcasts and you've recently updated uh, your iOS to the new uh, iOS that Apple came out with, it got way easier to do a rating and a review of a podcast in that app. So while you're there, make sure to, to give the podcast a review. It really helps the show. Thank you to our sponsor, HelloFresh. Go to hellofresh.ca slash on the record to get 50% off your first box. If you like the podcast and you want to keep hearing it, go to offscript.ca slash donate. Sign up to contribute three, five, or eight bucks a month. Each dollar goes directly towards the cost of production for this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode next week. We've only got a handful of episodes left in the story of former MLAs that we're telling. And then after that, I'm really curious about what people who are currently listening to the show would find interesting. Springtide is committed to helping people uh, lead and make change in politics with their integrity intact. And uh, we're looking to broaden our scope and broaden our audience 
audience to people who are interested in politics, but more than just what happens in the legislature. Um, in addition to the other new podcast we'll be coming out with shortly called Govern Yourself Accordingly, which is meant to reach uh, a much broader uh, audience than just Nova Scotians. We're also interested in, in keeping what we're doing here in Nova Scotia alive um, and supported through this podcast. So um, if you're in Nova Scotia and listening, which I assume most of you are, um, and there's things you want to learn about, things you want to hear about, conversations you'd like to uh, listen in on, uh, as we have given you the opportunity to do so with uh, our interviews with former MLAs, um, then we want to hear from you what would be helpful for your own understanding, for your own engagement, for your own awareness uh, that you can bring into your political life here in Nova Scotia. So if you have ideas, um, thoughts you'd like to share on the future of this podcast after that, feel free to send an email to us at offscript at springtide.ngo. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thank you.